when you're in the academic space, the communication you try to put together is very much about how clever your work is and how you've seen a thing that other people can't see. And as far as I can tell, no one in the real world actually wants that. Like they want to get stuff done. And you waxing philosophical about the nature of computation is absolutely a waste of their time. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. Well, we're live today with Frank McSherry, who is a data processing expert and someone I've followed for several years. So I'm excited to have some time together, Frank. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Frank, I understand that you were either the creator or at least critically involved in the creation of timely and differential data flow, and then more recently, materialize. Anything else I should be adding to the resume and agenda for us to discuss today? I mean, I think in terms of open source software or just like generally available software, those are the main ones. The other thing that gets tacked on to me is differential privacy, but that's sort of tens of years back or so. But yeah, those three are great to talk about. Yeah. Well, maybe you could start us off. We'll get into you and yourself, I imagine, as part of the story behind how these projects were created. But maybe first you could just give us a primer on what differential data flow and the others are, because I think they're related to a degree. Yeah, sure, of course. So there are three projects that sort of form a little bit of a of a software stack, if, if you like. At the lowest level, there's this thing called timely data flow, and this derives very strongly from work that we did at uh, Microsoft Research many years ago. And I'll try to like hit on that uh, in, in this project called NIAD. And that's the mechanics of data flow from our point of view. How do you move data around? How do you schedule things? Not super opinionated about what should you be doing, when you move the data around or, or run tasks, but that's one of the layers of the stack. And you go up a little bit and you get to differential data flow, which starts to have a bit more opinions that maybe what you should be doing is maintaining incrementally computations that people have expressed. So you, you sort of trick people into expressing computations as if on static data. This is a cute trick that the link people with C-sharp, that's the first place that I saw it, but it's like this fluent style of programming where you um, trick people who are familiar with let's say object-oriented programming, then I would say like my data collection dot join dot reduce dot map. And you trick them essentially into expressing declarative programs. And once you've elicited that from them, description of what they want to happen, but not necessarily how it has to happen, you can put together a system like, like differential data flow that says, great, I'll, I'll make that happen for you. But also behind the scenes, I'll continually update the results of your computation as the input data change. So it's a bit more now opinionated about like, what, what am I going to do with my data flow resources with that, that compute framework. And then Materializer lives on top of all of this and says, that's all well and good. Differential data flow is still a, a Rust library. So you know, you're welcome to go and use this if you like Rust. But the large majority of the people out there are very much more comfortable with something like, like SQL or even graphical tools that compile down to SQL queries. So sort of opening up the accessibility aperture of the project to give people access to cool sort of incrementally maintained computations using languages and tools that are much more familiar to them, things like SQL or, or other sorts of query builders. Those are the three, like in terms of vocabulary and, and things they're excited to talk about, those are the three sorts of things. And I guess they're layering in terms of complexity and value added, I suppose. You've nicely put them in the kind of this uh, low level to higher level abstraction stack for us. And now let's go back and what led you, I guess, did they come in this order? Was it timely and then differential? And then of course, more recently materialized. So Materialist is definitely the most recent one. The timely and differential stuff is a little bit of an interesting story. It, it definitely started 
much longer ago. So this is back in, you know, I would say maybe 2010-ish, uh, maybe 2011. I forget the exact time. So there was a bit of history, I suppose. Like there's some really cool things going on in Microsoft Research's Silicon Valley Lab. This is a place where things like Dryad Link got created in this sort of, is what Spark looked like four years before Spark got published. This is really cool. Just write some high-level code and it'll spin up a few hundred machines for you. And that project sort of got a bunch of energy there about people working with big data and, and in particular, like trying to elicit some structure about these programs from people. So don't force them to wire up things manually. And this led to many things, but for me, at least it led to this project called Nyad that was going to try to take those works and turn in, you know, add a few new fun bells and whistles. We were particularly looking at iteration, like loops and stuff like that as a cool thing that you might want to be able to do. And that sort of led to streaming pretty quickly because when you go around loops, you don't want to redo everything from scratch. You want to sort of incrementally update stuff. And what we had at first was this pile of code that did everything that we thought it needed to and was pretty inscrutable. And most of the folks who looked at it thought it was pretty inscrutable. And we were lucky uh, to have uh, several really good people working on it. One of them, my take at least, is one of them, Derek Murray, sort of sliced through this tangle pretty elegantly and separated what we had into two parts. One was the sort of the mechanics underneath everything is this timely data flow. And another part was the, uh, you can always think of it as the application logic, but the bits that were doing joins and reduces and stuff like that up above that. And that separation worked really well from a separation of concerns so that you know, folks could work on the lower level system thing, just figure out how do we move bytes around quickly? How do we schedule things well? And other folks could, you know, you put on a different hat basically and, and work on the level above that, which was, hmm, given that I have these nice mechanics below me, how do I, how do I think about putting together some higher level programming on top of that? And that was sort of the moment where, for my take at least, where these things separated into two parts that made a lot of sense to keep separate because, uh, you know, you could work really hard on one of them for a month and then take a bit of a break and work on another thing. They didn't have to be deeply coupled. It was a really nice uh, separation. I'm, I'm glad that Tarek had that perceptive separation of the two. And, and from that point on, you know, the United thing at, at Microsoft, we eventually open sourced that. And then due to some exciting stories, which, which we can get into, uh, the lab sort of went away. Uh-huh. And things got a bit of a reboot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now, Frank, you were employed with Microsoft at the time, working in the research lab. This was your job. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. We were all professional industrial researchers, which was a super plush sort of setup to have. Like, you know, you're, you're getting a solid, reliable salary to sort of work on the things you think are best. You don't have to fight with getting customers or anything like that. So it was definitely it was a great opportunity to really take some time and think. And like when people ask, to the extent that this worked out relatively well, why was it? I think the time at Microsoft and sort of having that amount of oxygen to sort of sit around and think and, and make sure you got things right uh, was a real, real important part of it. Maybe just on that, I, you know, we hear stories about Xerox Labs and Google's had all kinds of little innovation efforts. And you wonder, you know, if these things work out in the long run. I don't know the story behind Microsoft's work, but was this kind of an apex of like there was a lot of Microsoft research going on and it sounds like some of that wound down? Microsoft Research has traditionally been an excellent place for people to go and do top-tier research. And possibly, the, actually, maybe the most interesting thing when the lab got wound down in 2014 was up until that point, the Microsoft Research community was pretty much invulnerable. Like, it was a great place to go for total job security. And it changed a little bit after, like, the perception of, like, oh, geez, to the extent that you want a job there for the rest of your lives, you know, you should make sure you're going to have to work for it, which which is good. I mean, I think different people have different takes on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I personally... I've been doing some, what I think is like really great stuff since being kicked out of the nest, some, some level, like actually having to go and interact with other people outside your filter bubble, challenge yourself to do some other things. I think this is great. I feel a little bad proposing that other people should think it's great too, because 
is a bit more disorienting for some other folks. Yeah. But, but I've had a great time since then. Good. So the research work at Microsoft wound down and you you kind of ventured off, but continue those same efforts. Yeah. So this is where the story gets like a little less traditional, maybe. I don't know. Oh, the lab uh, vanished and several, several people were trying to figure out what to do. A bunch of folks went to Google because Google is just right down the street and that was super easy. I hadn't taken vacation in a while. I was like, oh, I should just go take vacation for a little bit. But uh, we all had some time where we're still technically employed and we're sort of thinking about, oh, what do we want to do next? And hanging around, in this case, San Francisco. And was thinking how it would be neat to learn some new skills. You know, I was pretty fluent with C Sharp at the time, but I wasn't sure what I was going to do with that. And uh, proposed to some colleagues like, oh, yeah, well, this is great. Like, there are all these new programming languages out there. I'm going to I'm gonna pick up Go and I'm going to rewrite Timely Data Flow and Go. And my work colleagues, if, if you're familiar with the folks at MSR Silicon Valley, like, you know, they're not uniformly supportive. So like some of them were like, oh, that's a terrible idea. You know, <laughs> that's that's not going to work out very well at all. So I switched to Rust and that worked out really well. Not not because of any deep insight on my part, just good luck mostly. I looked at the contributions to Timely Data Flow and it's mostly you. Was this kind of a solo project? Yeah, it's a good point. So this is in terms of what type of open source project is, is it the main thing that was going on here was I thought it'd be fun to take a second swing at things to make things better that I uh, thought we could have done differently after the first time. But the goal wasn't necessarily to build a massive open source project to get lots of contributors, but just to sort of do this in the open. Like I'm sort of used to giving presentations, writing papers, and trying to like communicate what's going on. And so it was very much about more of a sharing thing than a, uh, a soliciting contributions. Like it would be totally fine to take other people's contributions, but it's a bit of a weird enough project that like you don't just sort of walk in and say, like, oh, here, I'll fix this exotic piece of logic that sort of very carefully arranged. It was very much, yeah, more about about sharing and showing people what's going on, keeping myself honest. Like that was another, I really enjoyed that. Like sort of you put yourself out there a little bit and, you know, I had some confidence because I'd done some of this before, but you put yourself out there and and if you have some massive defect in some particular use case or something like that, people will call you on it. And you're like, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm doing a bad job here. Let me, let me go and fix that. And, you know, I had the time to do that. I didn't have anyone else trying to impress. So like for me, at least felt really good. You know, it was a really good sense of motivation. It works for me. I can imagine it doesn't work for everyone. No, totally. And that's how we get Timely. Timely and Differential sort of started to build up at this case. You know, there's a little bit of a reboot of Timely, which is the foundation for Differential. So I started to work on that as well. But around the same time, basically, I realized I'm in San Francisco, not with any particular employment, thinking about taking some vacation. So at this point, basically, I gave up my apartment in San Francisco, hopped on an airplane, ended up spending the next five years or so outside the United States in various levels of civilization. Like, you know, first place I went was Morocco and got 20 hours of consecutive sleep there. That was super nice. And, you know, just did a bunch of work on Moroccan rooftops, like typing stuff in and building data flow systems there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it sounds pretty... I needed to go somewhere. I still had some professional obligations to to academic conferences that were in Europe. And I needed to be near Europe, but not in Europe because the Schengen visa wouldn't let me stick around for as long as I needed to be there. So, you know, Morocco was close, did some surfing, wrote some data flows. I mean, it's, it sounds like a pretty sweet Yeah, the weather's nice, know? so rooftops, yeah. right? Absolutely. No, it was, I recommend it to everyone. And, you know, it's a pretty friendly place and doesn't break the bank. It was absolutely a rent reduction coming out of San Francisco, just to a different part of the world, seeing different people. Super pleasant. And then, you know, after that bit of time in Berlin, a few other places around Europe, just sort of working on rebuilding some of these fundamentals and, you know, learning about Rust. And there's a lot of, I don't know, a lot of learning. It felt very creative and fun. I like that a lot. So the timing on this was, let's say, a few months in Morocco, a few months in Berlin, a few months in the UK. I just sort of a few months here and there, in part because, you know, staying in any one place requires some paperwork if you stay there long enough. And that seemed exhausting. 
what I did do, uh, which was super nice, was drop in twice in Switzerland at the university in Zurich there and sort of worked with them and worked with several of their students on timely data flow, differential data flow related projects. They had a uh, an application that they were trying to build around data center modeling. So taking exhaust essentially from data centers and trying to understand what's going on in the data center. So like a, a monitoring plane for, for data centers that they had you know, tried to build with Spark and it didn't work out particularly well. And they tried to build it with Naiad with our old C-sharp code base. And that worked except running Naiad on Linux. It was C-sharp and that didn't work out great. And I was advertising that I you know, had infrastructure that could do the right thing. And so we tried to actually test that out and see if that was legit or not. So I hung around in Switzerland for a little bit, got some grad students there engaged, working with the code base, you know, adding on some features and generally, again, you know, testing it, seeing if it's actually fit for purpose and learning again, quite a lot. Absolutely. Like the whole process is very iterative. It's not, uh, you know, what you're going to do ahead of time. You know, you know what you're going to do for the next month or so. And at the end of that, someone points out that you're doing a really bad job at something. So let's figure out how to make that better. Again, this, this is what works great for me is, is repeatedly seeing mistakes that you've made and, and having to think about like, oh Yeah. I do know how to fix that. Let's get to work on that. But yeah, that uh, in and out of sort of Switzerland and bits of Europe for a little while, just to, to be honest, being very uh, you know self-indulgent and stuff like that. This is <laughs> the vacations that I hadn't taken throughout 12 years at Microsoft. So Fantastic. And that brings us to kind of the culmination of both timely and differential. They're more or less baked at that point. Yeah, they've been like, they've been pretty stable. So Materialize, for example, has been going on for, I want to say like a, a year and a half plus now. And Timely differential have been pretty well baked up to that point. You know, we've been fixing them here and there, and I'm sure they'll they'll need to be more work in the future. But from about 2019 going forward, uh, a lot of the focus shifted at that point. Arjun uh, Narayan, the co-founder at Materialize, convinced me, you know, sort of sold me on the idea that, which is totally reasonable, that like it's a lot of fun to do things on your own for sure. But if you actually want to see if this project has legs, if it's going to get anywhere, there's going to be lots of stuff to do that you're not going to want to do. Like, you know, like we need to write adapters for various uh, bits of infrastructure, people need to write documentation. There's going to need to be lots of this sort of thing. And the right mechanism for that is basically create a company, you know, put together some entity that can pay people, provide stability for them and put together something that's more useful than just a bunch of tech demos, which in some sense is sort of what differential and timely were. They, they worked really well if you carefully guided them, but you know, if you want to actually make it be something that people can use without training with the usability of something like a database, and that made sense. And sort of starting 2019, we putting that together and getting a team together and moved to New York in uh, 2019. And did you have motivating use cases along the way? Or was there kind of a, a problem to be solved at Microsoft that continued to kind of inspire your design and what you wanted to accomplish with Timely? And or were people picking up Timely and Differential and doing things with it that then kind of guided what you hope to accomplish with it? Yeah, it's a good question. I think in the early days at Microsoft, for me at least, it was very inwardly focused. Like there were some things that we were pretty sure we could do that we didn't think other people were were going to be particularly good at doing, and we wanted to do those things. No one was actually asking us for solutions to these particular problems, if, if I'm remembering correctly. But in the academic space, there's a lot of sort of back and forth where people, the game is that you're you're there to identify some core insights that other people haven't seen and and. If you realize like, oh, I bet, I bet you could actually do this. You're trying to, you try to think of a way to put that together in a way to present it outwards to other folks and show off, ah, look, we can actually do a thing now. Here's the way to think about it. Here's the secrets. So for a while, it was, for me, at least sort of that is here's some hard things that, that we can do. Other people seem to struggle. Let's try to put this all together in a nice package that makes it clear how computer scientists, 
like as a class should go ahead and do this as opposed to specific users who have specific problems. Yeah, for a while it was it was this. There was a big um, like as in 2014, as as the lab shut down, there was a bit of a change in tone, which which I enjoy, but maybe not everyone does. Where we uh, we no longer had a, a PR department that we were worried about offending, and started writing some content. I don't know if you're familiar with with this stuff, but the there's this cost paper about how uh, essentially laptops can compete with big data processing technology. On the laptop isn't going to win on sort of bulk ETL or something like that. But if you need to write a graph algorithm or, or something like this, you know, then being smart is potentially orders of magnitude better than, than being uh, wealthy, let's say, or whatever, whatever you call it when you just turn on a thousand AWS instances. So there's a little bit of something to prove, I think, from that point going forward that like by writing an expressive program, one that reveals its structure to the underlying runtime, you can do a lot better than, than just brute forcing things. And I, that was sort of being my bonnet for a while was, can we figure out how to make this framework, these, these programming frameworks capture what it is about your, your program in each of various cases that should actually make it easy to run across multiple machines. Can we remove blockers to concurrency that are currently causing people to run one thing, then another after it, then another after it, and maybe do all those at the same time. So this, this is a bit of like, you know, philosophical positioning there, a bit of religion on my part that like, we should be able to do this. Personally, at least I'm not going to rest until figure out a right right way to either communicate that we can do it or figure out why it's hard or, you know, very self-indulgent stuff to be told. This is about me learning and trying to make a record of, of it as I went. But um, yeah, but it's definitely, it was not external people saying, you know, it would really help if we could have SQL right now or, or anything like that. Though it materialized, this has, of course, changed dramatically. Big change for me personally, but very much about what are the things that are hard for normal people and how do you wrap things up with a bow so that they don't have to deal with all of your cleverness. Because although that's fun to talk about, no one really cares, right? They, just, they want to get stuff done. And you waxing philosophical about the nature of computation is is absolutely a waste of their time. And to what extent has your work on timely differential kind of fit those needs of folks that you run into now with Materialize? Has it kind of been like, look, my research happens to work in the real world? Or, or have you found needs to kind of tweak and adjust things from there? We definitely need to tweak and adjust things. I mean, some some things have been really great, like personal favorites, at least. And you're getting a massively biased view, by the way, uh, of this. So, but personal favorites have been sort of correctness was really built in early days to differential and, and timely, and that's meant that we very rarely, so far, materialized. I've had questions about like, well, is the underlying execution engine really working correctly? Like, we're seeing glitchy results. Whose fault is it? And it's it's been really nice that the early commitment to to correctness with at the possible expense of some complexity. Uh, like you need to know a little bit more, has made our lives a lot easier from a debugging point of view, from a performance point of view. Sort of, it, the system does what we expect because we had that take early on. There are probably a few, you know, questionable things. Like the system is definitely meant to run and go as fast as it can without too many interruptions, and that's a bit awkward when someone shows up and says, "Hi, I'm code that might throw exceptions." Like, you know, in SQL, if you can divide by zero, what do you do? And timely differential say, well, if you divide by zero, that's your fault. You shouldn't have done it. And of course, the reality is that's not an acceptable answer. You can't you can't just take down the database thing because someone put in some glitchy data. So you know this sort of thing we've had to work around a little bit. That's fine. I mean, but it, it didn't come for free. So we, that, at that point, we had to. This is all up and materialized. But you know, think about hmm, how do we want to deal with the fact that people might write code that on a normal system would cause execution to stop. Uh, you know, we have to guard against that somehow. And, 
did some hardening basically around that, which, you know, is, is healthy. Like you see, what are the, what are the actual bumbles that uh, a computation undergoes when you're not running it on, uh, if it's not a race car that you're sort of pointing down straight down the track, trying to get to uh, as fast as it can go, but instead driving around the town, bumping into shopping carts, stuff like that. Now, materialize again. Peeking at the contributor list, looks like you know there's a lot, a lot more faces contributing, and it sounds like it's a little more practical project, which it feels a little different than you skipping around Europe talking to people at universities. How, how is that? What's that transition been like? You know, do people share your vision, and or or is it kind of hard to kind of hand off parts of the project to others? It's a great question. Yeah. I mean, I think I can answer that in parts, but there's sort of this broader question of like, of how easy is it to hand off stuff is, is a little tricky. I would say that a lot of the folks, so a lot of the contributors I think are, are from materialize. Like it's, it's not a, a groundswell of individual contributors. We're happy, we're delighted for that. But again, it's one of these, it's, it's a sufficiently technical thing that it's a little bit tricky to just drop in and, and help out. But what's been really nice, I really enjoyed about the company is that there's some things I'm good at and I'm pretty happy to, to go into. And there's other things I'm just terrible at and have no passion for. And it's been great to work with people who are really good at these things that I'm not good at and that I don't enjoy doing. So we get a lot of contributions, for example. Like I, SQL parsing, for example, and the intricacies of the 2,000-page SQL spec, I don't know. Like They wash over me. i do not not passionate about this. But we have people who are like, no, no, this is important. Here's exactly what Postgres says about how it's going to work. And so we're going we're gonna to do exactly that. It's going to make our life slightly difficult, but, but don't worry, I'll, I'll handle it. And that's great. Like, I absolutely love that. So reaching out, like it's, it's been a, I don't know, I, I feel like you don't necessarily have to have a company started up to do this, but definitely the ability to interact with people who have different skill sets are good at what they do and really amplify the work that you've done is has been a delight. I mean, I'm super positive about that. And to the extent that you can bottle that up and and sell that experience, I, I think that's great. Yeah. So as you're interviewing people, when you find someone you share your passion with, you're like, nope, sorry. And then when you when you find the boring people, you're hired because- Well, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I, I failed to answer one part of the question, which I should have, which I think is, you know, are there people who share share the passion? I think most of the folks who are interested in Materialize, like the folks that we've, we've brought on board, share the passion. There's a little bit of selection bias going on here, but, but a lot of the folks have- sort of are, are in with the philosophy of like, hmm, it would make sense to build a data processor that can respond to changes in its inputs rather than rerunning things from scratch. So I think folks come on board thinking this actually makes sense. Like, I, I think this is a, a sane product. We should build this thing. And, you know, a good hunk of the underlying timeline differential data flow philosophy is tied up in that. And so we're not in conflict about the right way to build a database or anything like that. And a lot of these people could totally, you know, like with a bit of I don't like getting familiarity with timely differential data flow probably for them doesn't require a big philosophical change, right? They're sort of on board with, with other works. There's, there's some crazy code. Rust, Rust is wonderful, but like you can definitely write some complicated looking stuff that it takes a little while to unpack. In some ways, people are seeing your ideas for the first time. What am I trying to say? You know, these ideas were mostly around researchers and now you're trying to shed a light for the common man, for the rest of the world to view data processing in a different way. How, how has that been? And do you, you find yourself having to tell the story a little bit differently or communicate the value? For sure. I mean, back in, in the academic space, I do a lot less academic stuff than I used to, but when you were in the academic space, the communication you try to put together is very much about how clever your work is and how you've seen a thing that other people can't see. And as far as I can tell, no one in the real world actually wants that. Like, it'd be great if the thing that you did actually was invisible, right? If, if materialized looked exactly like Postgres, it just, just went faster. That'd be great. And, and you didn't have to read 50 pages of blog posts about how clever anyone was. 
so there's a bit of a bit of this like trying to figure out what's the right way to make take the stuff that is most useful to these people and make that just just seamless and maybe walk away from some of the more complicated stuff that you, you could have a long discussion with someone about how they could change their, their thinking to better fit with with your setup and instead you know either meet them halfway or meet them 80 percent of the way and it's definitely a different way of thinking it's it's pretty rewarding i don't know i did a, when i left microsoft i i did a whole bunch of blog ready stuff and one of the things i really liked about that was that the type of communication that you take like the type of approach you take to communicating i suppose it was a lot less adversarial it was, it was less about writing defensive text that assumed that the person you were talking with was going to challenge you and made it just a bit more friendly and, and engaging and, and fun sort of bringing other people into interesting ideas and you, know, you can make things a bit simpler in that case, but the tone also just changes. And it's more, it's more like, wow, there's a cool thing that you can do neat stuff with now. That's great. I'm not going to tell you that you need to fire half your staff or something like that. I'm not going to, you don't need to uninstall our competition stuff. No, it's just, there's some new cool stuff that you can do. And I'd like to show you the new neat stuff and we can all get excited about it. And then you can decide for yourself what the next step should be in terms of, do you want to use this stuff or not? But like, let's at least understand that there's some great new opportunities for us. And we're in a privileged position, of course, of like being responsible for that. So like, if we didn't have anything new and interesting, that would be a not such a good position to to take in terms of presentation. But yeah, let's talk just a minute about kind of the open source aspect. It sounds like at the beginning with timely differential, open source was kind of just your way of sharing. It was academic open source. Uh, it was mostly your work. Share with the world so that you can collaborate and kind of talk to others who are interested in these same topics. And now with Materialize, the open source is kind of more commercial in nature. This is your way of getting early adopters, and there's licensing differences that, that go with that. Absolutely. So just to be clear, the material is, uh, is, is source available rather than strictly open source. It's got this BSL license, which converts to open source after a few years. Our goal very much is to like try to respect uh, a bunch of the nice features of open source, though we absolutely want to stay away from calling it that because some people are very sensitive. But for, for example, like a, a thing that I feel pretty strongly about is that our employees are, are people first and employees second. And so like the work that they do, the company should be accessible to them in the future. Like, you know, if they, at some point, if we do, let's say we do really well and they're able to just wander off and, and get new jobs or something like that, or not work at all, they should absolutely be able to have access to all the stuff that they did show people that walk them through their hard problems, their easy, easy stuff, the stuff they're most proud of. Like, I think that's for me, at least that's the super important part of the, uh, the human experience and uh, all of this. There's some other dimensions too. Like for sure, it's it's a different way to try to engage potential customers who are potentially worried that you're doing a weird, unique thing. What happens if you uh, if you go away or something like that? So it's a bit of a bit of insurance. At, at least one person who was looking at timely and differential and materialized had the very specific anxiety that like there isn't a backup plan if something breaks. Like you know if, if I get hit by a bus or something like that. It's not like there is a different version of materialized that's only half as fast. It's just it's such a qualitatively different experience that like if you tried to port your materialized analyses to Spark, it's not like it instead of taking milliseconds, it takes tens of milliseconds. Now it takes, you know, minutes and more. So there's that sort of anxiety that we're trying to relieve a little bit by by putting it out there and saying, like, worst case scenario, you just keep using this stuff right now and it literally becomes open source after after a few years. And and you've got a big life insurance policy or something along those lines. Just kidding. Yeah, well, that's another. Like, I'm I'm working really hard at the company right now, actually, to like de-risk that aspect. Right. Of it. Not not that I'm worried about getting hit by buses. Well, maybe maybe I should yeah. be. Um, don't tell the competition. But no, but uh, you know, it's very helpful just from a uh, professional 
sense to like have lots of people who can do the things that you do so that you can go on vacation, for example, or do things like that. There's a big community around data processing, what was Hadoop and now Spark that are being introduced, you know, you know practitioners who maybe aren't academics who are being introduced to materialize for the first time. And some of those people may be listening to this show. How can they get involved in the project? How can they learn more? What would you tell new people? Yeah. Well, there's a repo on up on GitHub. That's um, you know a great place to drop in. There's some issues tagged as sort of good first issues in there, though. To be totally candid, like if you'd like to participate, it's probably good to socialize that first to sort of check in and say, I think this is true of all open source projects, to be clear. Like rather than showing up with a you know 500 line commit or something like that saying, please merge, check in and, and say like, I'm thinking of taking a stab at, at this particular issue. Does this seem appropriate? Are you planning on pivoting away from that. But yeah, there's, for example, there's definitely a bunch of stuff that, that we could use up with just related to different ways of getting data in and out of materialize, for example. So there's different formats. Some people are pretty passionate about like, let's take like Apache Arrow, for example, it's pretty exciting. There's a lot of energy behind that. It's not a thing that we have native support for at the moment. So if someone wanted to show up and say like, ah, I've got it, don't worry. Totally reasonable to like talk through how do we engage uh, with people who want to do that sort of stuff. There's a Slack, like there's a materialized community Slack that you can drop in on. And I think that's a great place personally. If, if I can recommend a person to show up and try to get a sense for what's different, what are people using things for, what are the directions that, that some of these things might go, that's you can get there just if you go to materialize.io, there's a, a little clicky link up at the top that takes you to the community Slack. But to be honest, I think, I mean, this sounds great if people want to drop in and like try to contribute to core materialize. A thing that I think seems really interesting to me and that I would probably encourage even more is building stuff with materialize. So like the experience of using materialize, I think is pretty new. And I think that first of all, I mean, it'd be great for us, but, but I think also like really stimulating for a lot of different people with different backgrounds is thinking about what would you do with something like this? So even just, just putting together like a, a new application that uses materialize as the backend, you know, isn't okay. It's not core materialize that, that you're working with, but it's sort of getting a sense for, you know, is this appropriate for a certain class of application? You know, you try to do some neat uh, model serving with machine learning, or if you could do some new interactive session stuff that you, know, you can write in SQL instead of custom microservices. This strikes me as like a, as a cool thing. If you're trying to think about, I want to go and build a thing or, or work on a thing, we're more than happy to, to sort of link up with these folks and give advice on how to use materialize and show off a few cool patterns. Along those lines, are there classes of things? Presumably there's common areas where people are putting materialized to work that might strike a chord with listeners. What, what might I be working on that I should say, I should, I should see if materialized can help me with that. The rule of thumb that I use, which is a bit flip, but like might as well try out is um, if you're doing any sort of data processing uh, in particular, you know, like SQL looking things or sort of spark looking things, you know, if you ask yourself, why, why am I waiting for my data? What, what would I do if I got the results immediately? Would I build a, a different application? How could I engage better with the people using whatever I'm building? This is sort of the first first question. If you if you think like, oh yeah, wait, hold on. If like if those results were always current and always fresh, if I wasn't rerunning a thing, I could give people this this different experience here. And there's some cool examples of that. You know, some of them are. It, it depends, I guess, what you get excited about. Like like some people get excited about uh, like ad tech, for example. I don't I don't personally get lots of really excited about ad tech, but like some people really do. And like, wow, cool. Obviously, this is gonna have some some benefits for for folks there. There's some really neat things uh, from my point of view. Um, this is maybe a bit dorky, but like traffic analysis, like collecting data from where people are in cities and moving around, sort of a bit of a, a fan of maps and stuff like that. And just thinking through how can you collect and collate a bunch of information that, you know, previously, like I think at the moment you get New York turnstile information bucketed by every four hours or something like that. And if you had that 
at a much lower latency, you could actually see where people were flowing around uh, in the city. Not obviously tracing in particular people, just counting the number of people walking through turnstiles in, in New York City and sort of checking out heat maps of where do people seem to be going into the system and coming out of the system at any point. Just, I don't know. I'm not sure what you would do with that necessarily, but I think that's fine. I think like a lot of projects that I that I put together are also like, I'm not sure what this is for, like Sudoku and differential data flow. Like that's not, no one's ever going to need to use this for professional Sudoku solving, but like it's, it's sort of fun and you, you're like, oh, cool. I learned a new thing, you know, developed a new skill, had to f- face some problems, but got around them. This is something I wrestled with. As you know, I worked on some similar products at Google and telling people why they should care about real time was always a little tricky because it, I, I think we're used to just living in a world of historical, like there's the historical system and then there's the kind of operating system. And uh, I think what's compelling here is that you're right. You can write, rethink use cases and approaches because your operating system is just up to date and, and, and you can consume it without further analysis. One take on this for what it's worth is like, I mean, it's, it's a hard conversation to have five or 10 years ago, I think, where someone said, fetch stuff works for me now. Why should I lose sleep over stream processing, low latency, everything like that. And I, I think a thing that has changed, or we're certainly working on changing, is reducing the amount of sleep you need to lose. Right. So like if you can just show up and, and type some SQL queries and get exactly what you expect out of the system. Or, you know, in, in different settings, you know, type type link queries or whatever. But if we're re- reducing the the pain for what you need to do to actually get low latency interactive data analysis and sort of pivoting it around to saying like, I mean, why are you waiting? Like, why, why not use low latency real-time stuff? Think of all the potentially have, isn't it weird that you have to wait 20 minutes to see the action that the user just took? Shouldn't you be able to mirror that out immediately? So hopefully with things becoming easier, I guess it's not necessarily that real-time, maybe it has gotten more important, but there's less of a reason to not, not try it out and, and, Think of the new things that you can do. As we wrap up here today, Frank, I'm curious where you go from here. You've kind of been noodling on this idea in some form or another, sounds like for a decade or something, more of the same and kind of sink your teeth into materialize for the future. For the foreseeable future, there's there's materialized. And materialize is definitely interesting. Like it's not, to be totally clear, like my the day-to-day there is not me sit at a computer and type furiously or anything like that. It's a lot more of learning lots of new things. A lot of them are about, you know, being part of a of a company being part of a business where one of the things I need to do is go and figure out how to, how to communicate what's cool about, about materialize and stuff. And that's, as, as you can tell, this is an iterative process learning about that too, but uh, you know, how to project manage various parts of what's going on inside materialize that is close to timely differential data flows, totally new to me, like no management training at all in the past. And so trying to both pick that up and get some input on, on that. So there's, there's a lot of stuff. I don't know. I'm, I'm learning a bunch of stuff right now and, Almost certainly, since it's still early days for materialize for the you know, foreseeable future, doing whatever it needs to needs to happen to to get materialize up and moving as, as best we can. It's it's a lot of fun. Like the different hats fit differently, and and you feel a little bad just doing the same thing over and over again. Sort of going to a different research area, just starting over. But I'm hoping some materialized stuff, then maybe a little bit of holiday. Yeah, in some ways, this is this is the academic stream. You, you've spent all this time developing new ideas. And for so many people, that means they publish and move on. And now you've got to kind of see it through in the final life cycle of make it a thing that everyone uses and benefits from. And, and that's, I think, super exciting. I think it's really cool. I, I mean, certainly very, very lucky in this, in this sense to have a thing that's worked out relatively well. It certainly was born out of collaboration with a lot of other people, so I don't get to take full credit for it. But it's really nice to be in a space where it turns out to be useful. And as a consequence, you can spend a fair bit more time 
working with it and leaning on it as opposed to sort of scrambling around trying to find uh, the next thing. So very lucky uh, in that regard. Yeah. Well, we'll all be watching very closely and we'll make sure to kick the tires. Thanks, Frank, for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the time. find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor.